when we sit together, we uh, support each other. So we're here to offer support and we're here to receive support from each and every being that's here. And I like to think of my own practice when I meditate in a group <clears throat> that we're here alone together so that we have the opportunity to, to um, search inside ourselves and yet at the same time there's all this external stuff going on so we can also pay attention to that which the Buddha definitely asked us to do not just look inside but also to uh, be aware of what is happening externally. So at New York Insight, we are um, very much interested in creating community so that when you come here, immediately you belong just by virtue of walking through the door. There's nothing required of you. You don't have to be a certain way or look a certain way or have a certain economic status or anything. Nothing is required of you other than bringing your bones and your mind in. So you're very welcome to be here. My name is Gina Sharp and we start always by having you introduce yourselves to each other. Is there anyone in the room who has not meditated before? Okay, because usually what we do is uh, we sit together uh, in, for a silent meditation and then uh, we do a little bit of movement. We'll figure that out. We'll figure out what that's going to look like. And um, then for these Tuesday evenings that I come once a month, uh, I like to do it as inquiry so that we're hearing what's on your mind and how we may together discover how the Dharma um, is operating in our lives or what particular things are coming up for us because whatever is coming up for you is probably coming up for several other people in the room, if not everyone else. So, um, so that's how the evening will unfold. And there are several people in the smaller room who are, will be taking instructions for meditation from Lani. Uh, most, most of them are people who have not meditated before. <clears throat> so if you feel as if you'd like some instructions, you're very welcome to go there. But so let's start by your just turning to a few people around you and saying hello. But before you do that, I want to give you one instruction. And the instruction is that we start meditating right now. So even though we're relating to others, our practice still is operating as our base. So when someone introduces themselves to you, really listen. And when you introduce yourself to someone, really be in your body. Really know you're not going out so much as you're presenting your presence. 
So see if you can practice with that as a beginning, and then we'll take it from there. Okay. Thank you. So let's start by sitting. And I'll just give some very short instructions. Can you start your practice by simply loving yourself seated here? What is amazing is that we as human beings have been sitting in roughly the same kind of posture. for eons. And is it possible to know this form, this physical form, this mind, and this heart, just as it is? not enhanced, not some other way, but however it is right now in this moment. Can we let go of any idea of how it should be and how we fall short of how it should be? and simply be here presently 
without pretense or idealization or requirement or neediness. Simply being here just as we are right now in this moment, sincerely, no secret agendas for what could be or should be, no grasping at what we think would be good, no shunning what we think is not good, but simply being here in the splendor and luminosity of who we are, just as we are. It's quite a task to discover our secret beauty. not that we're looking or needing it to appear, but literally establishing ourselves in this moment just as it is, with kindness and awareness, simply and barely.
So we have, we're waiting for our friends in the other room. So while we're waiting, I'm going to read something to you that essentially says no matter where you are in the world, if you've decided that there's something that you want to do deeply in your heart, you can do it. This is a story about an old man who lived in Minnesota. He wanted to spade his potato garden, but it was very hard work. His only son, who would have helped him, was in prison. The old man wrote a letter to his son and mentioned his situation. Dear son, I am feeling pretty bad because it looks like I won't be able to plant my potato garden this year. I hate to miss doing the garden because your mother always loved planting time. I'm just getting too old to be digging up a garden plot. If you were here, all my troubles would be over. I know you would dig the plot for me if you weren't in prison. Love, Dad. Shortly, the old man received this telegram. For heaven's sake, Dad, don't dig up the garden. That's where I buried the guns. <laughs> At 4 a.m. the next morning, a dozen FBI agents <laughs> and local police officers showed up and dug the entire garden without finding any guns. Confused, the old man wrote another note to his son, telling him what happened and asked him what to do next. His son's reply was, go ahead and plant your potatoes, Dad. It's the best I could do for you from here. <laughs> Everything is possible. We just need a little presence and a little creativity, right? So one of our traditions here is that we uh, talk about generosity at every uh, sitting <clears throat> because it's such an important and basic part of our practice and part of the way in which uh, we uh, relate with each other. There's a saying of the Buddhas that um, if you knew what I knew about generosity, you would not let one meal go by without sharing it. And for many years I heard that teaching over and over and over and over and over again. And I always wondered, what did the Buddha know about generosity that I didn't know? And as I've uh, done my own practice of generosity and, and become more and more immersed in the beauty and the um, great blessing of the opportunity for generosity and the actual um, conscious practice of it, I've learned a little bit about it. 
And one of the things that I've learned about it, and I don't know if this is what the Buddha had in mind when he said that, but one of the things that I've learned about it is that it gives, um, it's like spreading seed over the whole world all the time. And that those seeds may not germinate for an awfully long time, but eventually they do. And yes, you lose a few, you know, it's the way of nature. But that essentially every time you give, every time your heart opens, it's as if there is a seed that's planted in the universe of deep beauty, complete connection, heart opens. and something amazing happens. And one of the things that's amazing that happens is that we learn our own capacity for um, connection, for caring, for compassion, and just for understanding deeply that we are not separate beings, that we live on this planet and in this universe together is not an accident. And that we cannot, we cannot, we cannot survive without each other. So in that way, uh, we here at New York Insight really um, are deeply interested in the practice of generosity. Deeply interested in it. And we hope you are too. That we learn how to open our hearts, how to practice abundance with whatever we have, whether that's a moment of an open heart to offer to someone who needs your presence, or a way of supporting someone who needs support, whether it's emotional support, material support, or any other kind of support, or just an ear. We have a, a cadre of beautiful volunteers who help us to run these events, to do all kinds of things. Um, that, is that are necessary for a center like this to run and to run uh, well. So if you have talents that you would like to offer to this community, they would be very welcome. We also have, from the time of the inception of New York Insight, we have um, offered these sittings without a fee. And we invite you to practice generosity and to um, to, to join with us in this practice of generosity. The teachers come and we are not compensated uh, by New York Insight. Uh, rather, whatever you offer is shared by New York Insight and the, and the teacher. And we invite you really sincerely, it's not a way of like getting you to give money, 
right? Although, of course, it really is helpful and supportive for those who come here to support the center financially. And you can do it by giving it these sittings, by becoming a member, by making donations, by offering services. There are a lot of different ways. And certainly by just your presence here, you are su supporting New York Insight. And we, we, we really sincerely want you to practice generosity as a way of supporting your own practice. We're very interested in that. Because as a, as a matter of course, the Buddha never taught a student unless he was meditation, unless he was absolutely sure that the student understood the practice of giving and generosity. Because from that, he said, the heart would open and then the teachings would be able to drop in. So I encourage you to um, try this practice if it's not one that already is a practice for you. Um, because I think you'll be startled by the blessings that come from your own open heart and your own ability to, to share, as he said, to share, to not let a meal go by without sharing it. So whether it's on the street when you see people who are in need or in your own family when someone needs an ear or support or in this community, however it is, you're heartily and sincerely invited to do this amazing, amazing practice which, will, which does bring incredible blessing. So thank you for whatever you offer. There's a, there's a box in the uh, right at the door if you, um, if you feel that you would like to support us. Thank you. So, um, on these Tuesday nights, um, I don't give a, a talk. Rather, I invite you to help me to write a talk by your questions or your suggestions for um, what you would like to hear about and rather than you being out there not knowing anything and me being up here knowing everything, ha, um, what we discover is that we can learn together. And so I like to do a form of inquiry uh, where we may not solve a problem, but we may come to an understanding that we didn't have before or a deeper understanding of something that we did understand before, but it deepens. So um, I may not give you an answer to a question, but we'll certainly inquire together what might be true about it. So, and please don't be shy, even if you're, if you feel as if your question is like the most basic question in the world, it's okay, because many people will have exactly the same question, I guarantee it. So, Whatever your question is, if you feel moved to, we'd be happy to hear them. Right here, right here. I find that when I'm uh, doing the uh, meditation and I can focus on the breathing and then I, of course, like everyone else, thoughts, some scenario moves in and then I, I'm, I acknowledge it and I let it pass. The question is that... Um, 
I find that if I do a survey of this, that most of the things that move in on the meditation are very, actually quite disturbing. Uh, they're troubling and dark and... Um, they're charming, you said? Troubling. Troubling. Troubling and dark and self-critical and sort of hurtful to me, mm. you know. That's the nature of the things that I find. All of a sudden, I, f I find, oh, I'm contemplating this thing that's moved in, and it's rather troubling. And so I, I contemplate, I, I, wear, um, I acknowledge it and let it pass. Then another sim similar thing would come in. I'm just wondering, I can deal with it by just acknowledging it and let it pass, or should I try to modify it somehow or change it or deal with it in some other way than just acknowledging and, and then let it pass. Mm -hmm. I guess that's the question. And how have you been, how have you been working? Well, I, I, I think if there's a, there's a rule, I don't know, I, I, I acknowledge it. And I'm, I, I say, oh, that's making me feel a certain way. And then I let it pass. But I wonder if there's some other technique other that you can <laughs> change those negative things or deal with them that maybe during the meditation that's not the right time to do it but the way I, I do it I don't I don't try to change it or or contemplate a, a work on it I try to let it pass but they're all consistently quite hurtful mm -hmm. and negative so I, don't, I just so wanted to do something else I can do. Right. How long have you been practicing? Fairly regularly uh, for f two or three years, mm -hmm. sporadically before that. Mm -hmm. and, and you find that um, it's consistently the same thought, or is it a series of different thoughts or a variety of different thoughts? A variety of different thoughts, the theme of which is always... Break, tear me down, and to criticize. So someone in inside is trying to hurt me, you know. Mm -hmm. Negative, self-critical, hurtful things. That's the general theme of those intrusive scenarios. Whose voice is it? I don't know. Uh, whose voice is, there's not anyone actually speaking. Mm -hmm. I don't hear a voice, but the, it's the imagery and the scenarios mm -hmm. from my past. Something, maybe someone said to me that was hurtful maybe 50 years ago, you know, or, or, or last week, or from childhood. It, it, I don't know whether it's anyone's voice. Mm -hmm. And um, does it come, you said it comes in images rather than in... Scenarios. Words. Yeah, scenarios. Not in words. Uh, I, I, don't rem I don't know. Uh, there are images and scenarios and mm -hmm. narratives. Mm -hmm. And when you acknowledge them, do you pay attention to it or do you acknowledge it in the hope that it will go away? <laughs> I acknowledge it because I, I know that the process that I'm supposed to follow is whatever comes into my mind, 
acknowledge it. I, I don't. How do you acknowledge it? Well, I, I, um, I'm, 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 I, I, be, I am conscious of it, and I, I don't try to push it out of my mind, but I, I say, oh, that's what I'm feeling right now, and that's what's coming to my mind, so I, I'm just, I, I be with, I am with it until it goes away and I can go back to my breathing. Do you notice how it arises? No. Do you notice how it goes away? It goes away when I return to my breathing. Does it come back? Not the same thing, no. Some other. But you don't notice how it arises? N no, because all of a sudden I, I'll be going back I'll be in the breathing, and all of a sudden, I'll find myself in the middle so of a how, scenario. Okay, so how are you paying attention to your breathing? By being mindful of the breath and, and, the, and the nose, the tip of the nostrils. Do you notice the temperature of the breath before it comes into the, as it's coming in, and do you notice the temperature as it's going out, and which is... Is, if it, is it the same temperature? Is it different temperature? Is it cooler? Is it warmer? Is it, how is it? I, I don't notice that. I just notice the sensation of the breath and the tip mm -hmm. of the nostrils. Mm -hmm. I don't notice the temperature, no. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you again, how, um, what is it about the, the uh, imagery or the, um, or the, the words or whatever it is you're, is arising, because I'm not quite sure what it is that's arising, that you want to get rid of? Well, uh, all of it. They're, they're just so negative, and I have to use the word hurtful, and self-defeating, and self-critical, and... Is it self-defeating? Well, it tries to be, yeah. It, that's the nature Sorry? of it. It tries to be. It, it tries to be. Yeah. But is it? <laughs> I, I can't say. I don't know. Okay. I hope not. I hope I, right. you know, go beyond it. So what I'm hearing, so I'm going to reflect something back to you, and you can tell me if I'm hearing accurately or not. What I'm hearing is that the very idea or the very existence of these thoughts is unacceptable. Is that true? Well, it's unwelcome. It's unwelcome, okay, <laughs> but not unacceptable. Well, I, I could say it's unacceptable, but okay. I, I but could... You, th you think I'm tricking you, don't you? I, <laughs> I can say they're very unwelcome and they're very unpleasant and I, I would like, I'd like to make them unacceptable, yeah. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> so what would it be like if it was totally acceptable for them to happen? And if, you, if your languaging of what's happening was not um, that it's It's my thoughts that are arising. What would, it, what would it be like if it were just thoughts arising and passing away and, that, and you 
that you could really pay attention to just to see what the, even just the process, letting go of the content for a moment and just seeing the process of these thoughts arising and passing away, what would that be like? Well, I think I... Without evaluating them. Yeah. Well, I think the process is just being aware of them coming and passing away, but I can't help but remark that they're all the similar mm -hmm. dark nature. So you know. remarking that they're similar dark nature is different than an agenda to make them go away or to, or to make them different or to... Because if, if we're trying to make them different or trying to make them go away, then they are unacceptable. And so I'm just wondering what it would be like to shift our, your relationship to these thoughts rather than trying to shift the thoughts themselves and make them different. Because that was your original question. How do I, is it, would it be, is there another way of dealing with them so that they get transformed in some way, right? And there's, I, and that's not a critique of your question, I'm just repeating your question. So, and I'm, I'm kind of musing about what it would be like to simply allow these thoughts to come and go and not the acknowledgement for, for me when you talk about the acknowledging of it sounds a little bit like acknowledging it so that they'll, they'll go away and the musing about whether or not we could do something to make them, to, to transform them is also a way of pushing them away. And I'm just wondering what it would be like for your practice to simply see these thoughts arising and passing away. And yes, of course we notice that they're difficult or they're thoughts of self-judgment or thoughts of self-criticism or they're harsh or the imagery is dark or whatever it is, we can't help but see that. And what would it be like to shift the relationship to those, to that, to those arisings? Do you think that would be possible? Well, I think the, the relationship to them is, right now, is I am ob observing them and acknowledging them and then letting them pass away. I think that's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. But there's something about your, if that were all, if that was all that you were doing in terms of your relationship to them, then you wouldn't have this question. Because the, the question, the, the implicit basis of the question, I'm hearing, and I, you can tell me if I'm mistaken, the implicit basis of the question is, how do I really make them go away? Because if I'm trying to change them, shift them, make them something else, then I am trying to make them go away. Now, it's one thing if these thoughts are telling you to go and do something terrible, right? Then, of course, we could still have a relationship to them where we see them appear and disappear, believe it or not, as long as we're not going out and doing the terrible thing that they're asking us to do. If we're talking about, question, uh, about uh, thoughts of 
self-judgment and self-criticism and, and they're insistent. And we notice that that's, that that's true and we want to shift it. The first thing that we shift about it is our relationship to it where we think that we own these thoughts. Yes, these thoughts are appearing, but they're, they're not personal until we make them so, right? They're not true until we make them so. Yes, I think I'm a terrible person and I'm right, right? This idea that we're not good enough or we're, we're not smart enough or we're not fill in the blank enough is a thought that we don't have to buy into. If we're buying into it, then of course it has a deep effect on us. If we're simply seeing them as thoughts that arise and pass away, and you know, one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, in long retreats used to say, if you're having thoughts like that, just instead of thinking they're your thoughts, think it's your neighbor's thought. <laughs> right? And it's a really, it's a great technique. It's a fantastic technique. It's like, why did you think that? <laughs> right? So that, we, so that we're not having this relationship to these thoughts where it's very sticky, where we're, we're, we're really believing this is mine, this is true, because it's arising in, in the mind. And it, the minute we try to get rid of it or make it something different, that's when it sticks even further. So that's what I mean by shifting a relationship to it. Right? And just a sort of slap and a tickle, right? where we're just kind of acknowledging it and sending it on, on its way, may not be really honoring it enough either. So there may be t from time to time when after you've sat and you've allowed these thoughts to arise and pass away and arise and pass away and arise and pass away, where you want to, after you've come out of formal meditation, do some reflection. Whose voice is this? there's somebody's voice in there that you've taken to heart, that you've taken as true, that you've taken as your own. And to, to discover that might be really revealing and might be helpful. So that during the meditation, to notice that something is arising in the mind that we can actually see and, and see if we can be so, so precise about our attention that we actually see the arising of the thought. We see it as it's coming up. We see it as it's, as it's full blown and then we see it disappear. So that we're really paying that kind of precise attention. But precision should be accompanied by gentleness so that it doesn't become a harsh way of, you know, a militaristic injunction to yourself, but rather a a, an open, tender heart that receives this so that, when, so that when some thought comes into the mind that says, I'm not good enough or I don't do this well enough or I should have done this or I couldn't have done that or whatever the thought is, that there's a feeling, there's a relationship of gentleness with, oh, look at that. So that it's not just, okay, thinking, be off with you, but more of an acknowledgement that's deeper in the heart. 
that where the heart can actually open to the mind that's producing these thoughts. And one of the secrets to this is, is not being, not taking it as you. These are thoughts coming and going and they're only you when you take them in as you, right? But to discover what the voice, whose voice it is might be really helpful and interesting to you and might send you on a journey. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. So um, I uh, recently started my first full-time job out of college. And I found that my life has become very compartmentalized. And I was wondering how to maintain a consistent presence throughout a very compartmentalized New York City crazy day. How to, I'm sorry, how to maintain? A consistent presence throughout many varying compartments, I guess. So your life feels scattered and busy. Very much so. So anybody who doesn't feel that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the trick, isn't it? Um, so it's a really pertinent and important question. Have you been practicing for a while? I have not been. You've just started. Um, I started a, a, a little while. I started a few years ago and kind of had a similar experience to uh, the man who previously spoke and it kind of made me stop for a while but I recently got into it again okay so um, what makes you so busy well I mean I feel that each part of my life is just vastly different is really is really what it is I feel like I'm several different people at different times throughout the day I'm sorry I can I can't I, I, fe I feel you. like I'm several there we go I feel like I'm several different people throughout different times of the day yeah so it's part of it's the disease of our culture and maybe it's not even our culture maybe it's just the world these days everybody is busy I particularly love the um, there the, it's said and I'm not sure I've not I've not uh, checked this with a Chinese scholar, but I'm told that the same um, kanji for busy in Chinese, in, in Mandarin, I think it is, is me also means heart-killing. Heart-killing. So it feels like... Um, this busyness is imposed on us, but actually we're imposing it on ourselves. And partly it's greed, if I can use a harsh word for it, uh, that we don't want to miss out on anything. And perhaps it's that you're a student and you know at this time of your life many things are coming in and you want to check them out and sample them and see what's going on and see where, which directions you want to take. But I just wonder, and, and I think this is, a, this is an inquiry for all of us. It's certainly, you know, I've always described myself as a walking oxymoron. 
because it, there's something strange about calling myself a busy meditation teacher, <laughs> right? But, you know, but my life has gotten that way. And, well, it had gotten that way. And, and, and I'll tell you what happened. My husband fell ill. And as a result, I've had to let go of, you know, just multitudes of um, commitments, which is very hard for me because I'm, you know, I like being a good girl. I like being responsible. And so to have made a commitment and then to be, not be able to, to fulfill it has been really difficult. But what's happened is um, because I've, I've made him my priority, I've had to let go of lots of things. And I just said to him yesterday how wonderful it was in a way, not that he's fallen ill, but it's too bad that it's taken that for me to realize it. But I was able to sit down and write something that I was obligated to write in about a quarter of the time that I usually write it. It's the column that I write for the New York Insight um, newsletter. And I thought, well, wow, that was, that was amazing how quickly that went. And I wondered what, that, what the difference was. And I realized that the difference was that I didn't have six other things lined up behind it to get done. Because usually when I'm writing it, there are emails that I have to answer and other writings that have to be done and students that need to be responded to or seen and this is happening and that's happening. And so what I realized is usually when I write that column, I'm thinking in the back of my mind are all of these other obligations and maybe even a kind of secret thinking about something else while I'm writing it. And yesterday it didn't happen. Yesterday I sat down and wrote it and it, that's all I was doing. And I thought, well, look at that, right? There's something amazing about really this mindfulness stuff is really interesting. <laughs> right? So one of the things that really happens with practice is that it becomes easier and easier to do that, right? In the beginning, you know, we're still kind of fascinated about this multitasking thing and being able to, you know, do, you know, hit the hit the drum with one hand and you know play the saxophone with the other and you know make the guitar go automatically or whatever we do and so we're this one person band that's playing a whole lot of different tunes on a whole lot of different um, instruments and sometimes it all comes together but a lot of the time it's just disharmony so the first thing I would say is to inquire with yourself what can be let go of. What, how can you lighten your heart? Lighten the burden of your heart. What can be let go of? And I know we don't want to hear this. I know that because all, everything is so good. I mean, you know, as a Dharma teacher, it's wonderful because everything I'm being asked to do is phenomenal in terms of service. Right? So it feels like, it feels hard to turn anything down. 
And yet there's something beautiful about honoring the things that really are important to you, that you can prioritize, that you can feel, yes, I can give my whole heart to this. So that when you're giving your whole heart to something, there is a totally different feeling about it. And then let go of the things that, you know, so, so you don't post to your Facebook 10 times a day. Maybe five times is enough, right? Or you don't tweet in the middle of going to the bathroom. How about just going to the bathroom, <laughs> right? And really remembering what that feels like. <laughs> That's mindfulness, right? Every single activity can be honored and respected in that way. And perhaps, just possibly, our bodies will get healthier and our minds will be unburdened and our hearts will be lighter and the quality of our lives will improve naturally just with all of those things happening. So, you know, what we want is an answer about how we can keep all of those things and make it different. Yes, we can use the practice of mindfulness and presence and, and meditation to train the mind, but how can we be present fully for our child or for our work or for our creativity if we're thinking about what's next, what needs to be done next? And to really watch that and see what it would be like, like take a day from time to time, or half a day, or an hour, and just do nothing. Just practice, just see what it's like to really be intimate with the breath, to know the breath, this breath that's keeping us alive. It's not nonsense, it's not a waste of time. It's if you establish intimacy with the breath, you're learning how to be intimate with all things. Because in that establishing intimacy with one object is not about the object, it's about intimacy with all things. And it, that's similar for everything that we're doing in practice. Whenever we train the mind and the heart to attention, the object is not important. What's most important is the training of the mind or the heart to attention. Then it's capable of being attentive to all things it encounters, not just the breath, right? Breath is kind of nice, right? It calms you down, it feels good, you know, your mind can really get into a groove and everything feels fabulous. But as you say, afterwards we've got to get up and start to to work or do what we need to do. So the, the training of the mind during the sitting is really for that purpose. It's for what happens afterwards. I hope that's helpful. Thank you. There was someone over here. Um, just thinking about what people are saying, and I thought of that, um, that line of mindfulness and not clinging to anything in the world, just being aware. And uh, 
you know, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about when things happen and being attentive and not clinging. That's sort of, I'm finding that's like a very um, tricky place to be, to not cling to it and to, ha to uh, have it happen. I don't mean to be a downer for anyone, but... I'm sorry? I don't mean to be a downer for anyone, but two examples of that happened today of just being aware of not clinging, but to be mindful and to feel compassionate. Um, I was in um, my doctor's office and I saw uh, photographs in Time magazine of uh, the crash site in, U in the Ukraine. And there were a couple of photographs that were so powerful. I just, you know, it, it was, it was it was really powerful. And to think about compassion and meta in that process, you know, it's sort of like not taking it personally, but feeling so personal about it. And then my uh, next door neighbor who, you know, who's been a very sort of cantankerous, difficult person, I saw her and she, her foot is really in bad shape. And uh, the board in my building wants to buy a new elevator. And the first thing I looked at, I thought, she's not going to be able to leave her apartment. And I started thinking about the injustice of how it's unnecessary. So when I, and then there are other things in my own life. I was thinking about this gentleman, like with the negative thoughts that come in and how do you do that? So just that whole feeling of not clinging, but to always have an open heart and be compassionate. It's, a, it's just a very difficult thing. And the question is? How do, how do I, um, <laughs> I love that. How, how do I, I find it difficult to not, to just to keep cling. being, to not cling, just what, not what cling. What does not clinging mean to you? Um, I was thinking about what you said about the, the mind, like when a mind, a, a thought comes in, it's like, this is my thought, this is my, you know, like for example, seeing a photograph, this is my battle, what can I do to like fix that? Um, you know, what can I do to help this, you know, just making it so personal, but to still, I guess it's just, a, my question is the process of not clinging. Um, and I make a judgment about it because I, I fail at it all the time to not cling. Mm. Um, what does clinging feel like? Feeling so personal about it. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, and also maybe it's fear, you know? I mean, you, especially when you're talking about what happens when it arises. You know, like, well, how does it arise? I mean, that's the tough part. Um, and at moments I feel I can, I'm aware of something arising, but it's just so fleeting. It's, it's um, so fleeting? It's fleeting. Yeah. That feeling of, you know, like, oh, it's arising. It's like, stop it before it happens. Ah, that's the problem. See, so if it's so, I was with you when you said it's so fleeting. Yeah, it's all very fleeting, isn't it? It's all ephemeral. It's coming and going, coming and going, coming and going, coming. Whoever you were when you walked into this room, you are not that person anymore. Right? You are not that person anymore. Something's happened. The thoughts happened, or an experience has happened that has shifted something in you. But we're so um, focused on the um, 
on a kind of macro way of looking at the world that we miss these small shifts. This is the whole practice of mindfulness is that we don't miss those small shifts, that we actually see and we know and we feel what's happening really literally from moment to moment. It's not, it's not um, a way of speaking. It's actually true that it's possible that from moment to moment to moment we can actually see how we're changing and shifting. But if we're, if we're lost in thought and we're lost in some idea about how things are, we miss it because it is fleeting. It's like that. And this is too slow for how quickly things are changing and shifting. So the idea that you're clinging is an idea, which is why I asked you, what's it like when you cling? And I know what it's like when I cling. Do you want me to tell you what it's like when I cling? Yes. It feels really sticky. My stomach gets all in knots. My throat tightens. There's a burning in my chest. Some story starts to happen about who I am or who I could be or who I should have been or who I ought to be, right? Then uh, if I notice that and I see it dissolve, I see it dissipate, then I notice that the tightness in the stomach, the burning in the throat, the burning in the chest, the, the throbbing behind the eyes, all of that disappears like magic. So when we talk about not clinging, you're talking about, I think, and so let's inquire about it, are you talking about not clinging as a kind of uber idea of how you should be? Or are you right in this moment, right in this moment, noticing where, to what you are clinging and you're able to let it go just from the noticing of what you're clinging to, of to what you're clinging. That's, I don't like prepositions at the end of a sentence. Um, I, I'll, I'll have to investigate that. Uh, for, but I have to tell you that the way you described clinging was like exactly okay. what happens. Do you know how I know that? I pay attention. You pay attention. So if, I'm, if I notice I'm clinging, I'm not saying, oh, Gina, what's wrong with you? You've been practicing for many, so many years. Why are you still clinging, you idiot? No, I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is, oh, this is clinging. What's it like? What's it, what's it actually like to have this experience of clinging? And what's beautiful about this is it's scientific. Because all of the studies of the neuroscientists about what happens in meditation and how, you know, the frontal lobes and all, you know, how, what lights up and what goes dark and all of that stuff. One of their really brilliant um, discoveries is that uh, each the, is, is what the Buddha said 2,600 years ago, right? And what he said was, 
wherever the mind inclines. I'm sorry. Um, essentially, I, I can't remember the, the, the exact quote, but essentially, it's that wherever you put the, I'm sorry, wherever you put the mind, that's where it will incline. So the neuroscientists are saying, every time you have a thought, there's a neural pathway that's built in the brain, right? And each time you have that same thought, that neural pathway gets deeper and it becomes a habitual way of thinking, yes? So, so the Buddha is saying, wherever you put the mind, that's where it will incline. He's saying exactly the same thing. Or, I'm sorry, they're saying exactly the same thing he said 2,600 years ago. So if, if what you're doing is when you're clinging, or when you notice the experience of clinging, that's a better way of expressing it, you're saying, oh gosh, I wish I could stop clinging. Guess what? You're, you're, that neural pathway is getting deeper for clinging. If instead, what you're doing is noticing what is happening, that neural pathway is what's being dug deeper. The, the neural pathway of attention, of paying attention in a very precise and specific way. So we may, you know, we start with the breath and sometimes our instructions aren't precise enough with the breath. You know, so when the breath is coming in through the nostrils, do you actually notice it brushing past the nostrils, then touching the hairs on the inside of the, of the nostril, coming up into the head, stopping? What does it feel like for it to stop? What was the temperature of it as it went in? What was the pressure? How much pressure was there in the nostrils? This is not because we want to get you know, so phenomenally detailed about our attention, but because we're, the meditation is training the mind. That's what we're doing. We're training the mind to really know present moment experience, not sec nanosecond ago experience, not nanosecond forward experience, this experience right now. So the more detailed we can get about clinging, the more, the easier it will be for it to let go. Because, mainly because we're saying to the neural pathways, we're not going there anymore. Because every time this clinging arises, what's happening is attention. So we're, that's the pathway we're gonna be digging. But if you're like trying to get rid of the clinging, that's clinging to the clinging. Yes, does that yes. make sense? Yes, thank you, thank you. You know, and, and, it's, and it's a beautiful practice. And to also know that the practices that we do are cumulative and gradual. And you know, when we, in Zen, they talk about gradual and sudden awakening, but even sudden awakening is usually accompanied by long periods of sitting before that gradual awakening happened. So, uh, so every moment that you sit on the cushion and you sincerely practice, 
is, um, is contributing to the training of the mind that doesn't cling. Every time we notice the clinging and we let it go, we notice the clinging and we let it go not because we're kind of forcing ourselves to let it go, but because we're noticing every aspect of it. And in the noticing of every aspect of it, there is a natural letting go. Because in order to notice that, we have to let go of the clinging because consciousness doesn't admit the same two, more than one thing at a time. So if we're paying attention to the details of the clinging, we can't be clinging. Got it? Yep. Yes. I hate to ask this question, but uh, I, uh, I feel I'm a lucky... So how does it feel to hate? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, well, it's... Um, actually, I, you know, I, I'm uh, earnest in asking this question. Okay. I don't hate the asking okay. this question. Um, I, I feel like a very fortunate guy in, through my life and discovering, I feel like a very fortunate guy in my life and in, through hard work and, um, hard work, discovering a path that I feel is really my path, you know, of work and other things. But I am also uh, um, have many moments of uh, existential crises. And uh, so my question is, um, we, we talk about the practice. Um, I love the practice. I love coming here. I love the moments of understanding of the... We're going to run out of time, John. Okay, yes. <laughs> so, the question is, what's, what's the point? What's the point of, of any of this? Any of this. You know, I, I get hit with this... You're in the middle of an existential crisis. I am. <laughs> and I'm interested in specifically asking you, for you, what is the point... Why, is, why are you specifically interested? I don't, because in I'm interested in your perspective. In my perspective. And what the point of all of this and is. And maybe from the Buddha's perspective. Mm. Uh, okay. But, I, yeah, that's, that's the question. So, what's the alternative? <laughs> what's the alternative to what? <laughs> to just... Taking the next step and the next breath and the next moment. What is the alternative? Stop. So, okay, so let's stop breathing. Yeah. Let's see how long that lasts. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, again, we get preoccupied with a kind of meta or mega... Um, uh, idea of practice and it re it's so simple it is the next breath the next step the next whatever 
No. And we can all formulate a point, and certainly better philosophers than I have. Yeah. Right? Whether Eastern, Western, or in between. Many, many beautiful poets and philosophers and scientists and everybody have weighed in about what the point is. And I think that it's not important for you what my point is. It's important for you what your point is. <coughs> what, what is, what makes you um, come alive? And that's what you need to do, is what makes you come alive. Not what theoretically makes everybody come alive, but what makes you, John, come alive? What makes me come alive may be completely different than what makes you come alive. And so the, the point for me will be very different than the point is for you. That's what you need to go and do, is what makes you come alive. Yeah. I, and I am doing that. And you're doing that. Yeah. And, and, and so, so, you know, the rumination about what's the point of all of this yeah. is, is fine. It's not a, it's not, but again, it's just thought. Yeah. It's just thinking, right? And perhaps through that thinking, you'll, you'll discover something that may be totally wonderful for all of humanity. Or maybe you'll just discover what it is for you. Whatever, it's fine. But it's, it's not... It, the practice of being alive is complex and simple at the same time. And it is a practice. Because certainly if you look back at what you were like 10 years ago or 15 years ago or five years ago or 20 years ago, you can notice the changes that have come in your life. And maybe that's the point, the growth and the beauty that you've been able to share with the world. Or maybe it's been difficult for you and it, you don't feel it's beautiful. Although you said at the beginning that you do think you've got a very privileged life. But yet, there is a secret beauty that we all can, um, can, can see in, in what it is to be human. And that's messy. Being human is messy. It's not, you know, we, we're tempted to make it good or bad or this or that or, you know, all of the dualities and polarities. But it's really a huge, messy field that we're all playing in. We're not swimming. We're playing in. Right? And so some days you'll wake up and it, there'll be every point to, to being alive. And some days you'll wake up and it's like, oh, God, let me just pull these covers over my head and go back to sleep, right? Because I don't, I don't want to face what I have to face. But there's a, there's a kind of beauty about that even that, even the messiness of that, the messiness of, you know, the the horrors of the the field that Nico was talking about in in the Ukraine, and the horrors of the war in the Middle East, and the horrors of racism and homophobia, and all of the ways in which we are mean to each other. And yet, there's incredible, elegant beauty in the world. What do you want to live in? Where do you want to, where, where do you want to 
place your home. And it doesn't mean that you get a choice of, well, I'll just take the beautiful and I'll leave the ugly. You get, you get what you get. And the beauty is what you make of what you get. But a point? That's for somebody better than me. Well, that's very interesting because it used to being reminded of this next breath, this next moment, the beauty of that. When I get in this existential moment, I forget that. When you remind me of that, I get it immediately. You know, that is enough. Mm. You know. Thank you. So I'll just read this as the end of our evening together. This is from Thomas Merton. Um, it's from his one of his journals, and uh, he he was a monastic and a, a a cloistered monastic for much of his life, and he goes out into the world, and um, he writes this in his journal as he's standing on the corner of Fourteenth and Walnut. He says, "Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts." the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach, the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could all see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. So let's sit together for a moment. So just notice for a moment how the heart feels, how the body feels, whatever that is. Not needing to change it or shift it or make it something else. Feel it fully, whatever is arising in the mind, body, heart, stream. And appreciate the practice you've done tonight and the questions and the reflections that hopefully you've all done as you've been sitting there listening to the inquiries. And set whatever you've learned in your heart. Perhaps you can build your practice further from that insight or realization. You have them, you know. So let it come fully into your heart. And then notice the goodness 
and the field of merit that has been created by our being here together in this way tonight. And instead of holding that goodness or merit for yourself, participate in this act of generosity of spreading whatever goodwill, merit, goodness you have felt in your own stream, cast it out to the whole world as if we are all together casting a net of goodness over the entire universe. And we dedicate the merits and the goodness of our practice to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being and the awakening of all beings everywhere without exception. Wishing that all beings be safe from harm, all beings be happy and peaceful, all beings be healthy and strong and live with ease, free from suffering and free from the clinging mind, the cause of suffering. And if there's anyone that you particularly want to include in this metta meditation, please feel free to say their names out loud or in your heart. John. Marilyn. And we bring all of these beings into this room with us and include them in our wishes. And allow these good wishes to bathe our own hearts, our own being, and bring that into the world. Thank you so much for your attention. Please travel safely. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.